Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Figli Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Congolese protesters clash with South African police outside DRC embassy and Malawi's power utility rolls out ambitious lead bulb project. In sports news, Namibia happy with the grassroots rugby development. But first up the news with Anusa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Gambian President Yaya Jume has condemned mediation efforts by the African regional bloc ECOWAS that aims to get him to leave power. Speaking on state television, he has repeated that he will not step down. Jume, who subsequently said the election was flawed, says ECOWAS is violating the principle of non-interference. Meanwhile, 11 Gambian ambassadors have signed an open letter calling on him to accept the outcome of the December 1st election and facilitate a peaceful transfer of power to President-elect Adama Barrow next month. The ambassador of the Democratic Republic of Congo to South Africa, Benumpoko, says preparations are underway to hold presidential elections in April 2018 in his country. Mpoko condemned the violent protests by Congolese nationals at the DRC embassy in the capital, Pretoria, following long-serving President Joseph's decision not to vacate the position as president. Four people have been arrested for malicious damage to property and one for possession of a stolen firearm during the protests. Mpoko says President Kabila has asked for mediation on the planned elections. A way forward has been found so that the elections will be held in April 2018. The president has asked the Catholic Church to mediate between the people who have accepted their plan and the people who are still objecting to it. In the democracy, we recognize the right to organize a peaceful march. But they came with the intention of burning the embassy, destroying the embassy, causing body harm to the diplomats. Those are criminal acts. That's not democracy. The South African National Defense Forces' efforts are underway to repatriate the body of the South African soldier who was killed by rebels in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Molosi Mutuku died during running battles with militia on the Central African country on Monday. Two other soldiers were wounded after rebels attacked several bases during violent protests against President Joseph Kabila's bid to extend his term in office. They've been admitted to hospital. The Secretary-General of South Africa's ruling ANC, Gwede Mandashe, has admitted that 2016 hasn't been a good year for the governing party. He was speaking in an interview on the setbacks that the ANC encountered this year. These ranges from the party's poor performance in the August 3rd local government elections to widespread factionalism. Mandashe says they are now working on correcting the party's past mistakes. 
And finally, the arrival of the rainy season across the Horn of Africa is unlikely to improve conditions for millions affected by multiple droughts, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO. Close to 12 million people across Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia are already in need of food assistance as families struggle to make a living in the face of rising debt and low seed stocks. Livestock farmers have been particularly hard hit as food prices have increased while animal animal prices have fallen. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Congolese nationals living in South Africa have staged a protest against President Joseph Kabila at the DRC embassy in Pretoria. This in support of those who want President Kabila to relinquish power. Kabila's term ended on Monday, but elections have been postponed indefinitely, and instead he has appointed some members of the opposition into his government. More on the protest from Dr. Julia Katumbe from the Africa Diaspora Forum. Francis Bart Street in Acadia was brought to a standstill after hundreds of Congolese nationals started throwing objects at the police after they were refused entry into the embassy. The situation worsened, resulting in the police having to use rubber bullets to disperse the angry crowd. Two people were injured and four were arrested for malicious damage to property. Later in the day, a fifth suspect, believed to be the man who took off the gun, was arrested in Yeovil in Johannesburg during a roadblock. Police spokesperson kept Captain K. Uh, the police, as we have indicated before, that our intelligence are on the ground. Uh, the police have managed to recover the firearm in Uvel and the suspect has been arrested. You can imagine how fast these uh, uh, things is running when they have done the committed crime. Uh, the suspect now is uh, arrested, is uh, detained in uh, Cleveland, and uh, is going to face the position of uh, stolen uh, firearm uh, charges. The protest began on Monday with only a few people picketing outside the embassy. DRC Correlation Coordinator Amy Mulumba says they wish to go back to their country but can't live under the conditions imposed by the Kabila government. They accuse President Jacob Zuma of protecting Kabila and want him to shut down the embassy with immediate effect. We want from this media to tell President Jacob Zuma to tell Ben Poko, who's the East uh, Congolese ambassador, he does not have any right to stay again. Following our constitution, he can't anymore take Congolese, the representative of Congolese, or any decision, because that government of Kabila is over. We are manifesting our anger, as I said, following our constitution. We got right to march, to make picketing, to do whatever. We need everyone to know that what is going on in Congo, we can't accept it. Julia Kadombe from the Africa Diaspora says the whole of Africa needs to stand behind the Congolese people. We do not want refugees to continue flooding in South Africa. South Africa cannot contain all Africa. And why are people keeping, continuing keeping to come here? Because there is no peace, there is no democracy, there is no freedom. And Congo today is an illustration of that. Since 2001. 
Joseph Kabila was imposed on the Congolese people as a president. The entire Africa must back up the Congolese community in South Africa. They don't want to be here. Their country is very rich. Police remain on high alert and will continue to monitor the area. The embassy was not available for comment. I am Pumzilim Langini in Pretoria. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The African Diaspora Forum has given Johannesburg Mayor Herman Mashaba until January the 16th to respond to their demands following his comments about illegal migrants. Members of the forum and different migrant community leaders together with society organizations gathered at the Metro Center to protest and hand over a memorandum. They say the mayor's comments are wholly undesirable given the previous xenophobic incidents in Johannesburg and other parts of South Africa. More from the forums mark buffle the gathering went very well uh, we managed to be at the mayor's office uh, we managed to hand over our um, our memorandum we uh, voiced out what we were not happy about and um, unfortunately the mayor wasn't around but uh, he sent his uh, mmc community development to come and receive the memorandum. We gave them until the 16th of January, Monday, 16th of January, 2017, uh, to respond to this, uh, this uh, demand, I mean, our different demands. Um, our demand is including the fact that uh, the mayor should retract what he said. We also demanded that the mayor um, involve the private sector to assist in um, uh, finding a solution about uh, hijack buildings and how to renovate the buildings in town. Um, we demanded that the mayor should involve the, the different stakeholders, including the African Diaspora Forum, in finding solutions on the challenges that uh, migrants are facing. We have mentioned to the, to the mayor that migrants are not, uh, don't, migrants don't have a duty to control porous uh, borders. That, uh, that is uh, purely the duty of, uh, of uh, the South African government to do. And uh, we told the mayor that uh, migrants might be undocumented, but doesn't mean that they are criminals, uh, knowing the, the struggle. Uh, that uh, migrants are going through to get the document, that uh, the, the Department of Home Affairs is faulty and needs to be fixed. The mayor should speak to national governments for them to have an arrangement on how to fix the Department of Home Affairs for them, for, for it to function properly to document migrants who are coming here. We demanded that um, uh, the mayor should uh, refrain exposing refugees and as- asylum seekers to the different government because he said that uh, he approached uh, different embassies 
uh, he has a talk with them. So he just reminded him that uh, people who are asylum seekers who are and who are refugees and asylum seekers who are here in South Africa are trying to hide away from the government and uh, it's improper to go and expose them that they are hiding in his city. Um, yeah, so, so among our demands, those are in brief uh, what uh, we want the mayor to address quickly. And uh, as I've mentioned, we're giving him until the 16th of January to come back to us in writing and uh, responding to his demands. So what happens if the mayor fails to meet the January 16th deadline to respond to some of your demands? Then uh, we'll uh, reconsider. The mayor should know that uh, both the migrant community and South African citizens, civil society organizations were very disturbed about what he said. So I think uh, no one wants to drag this. It is a very sensitive issue knowing the number of people who died in xenophobic attacks and uh, his, uh, his uh, statement, his utterances uh, were tense with uh, xenophobic uh, colors. So that's why we think that uh, it's proper if uh, the mayor addresses this quickly so that uh, we close the chapter because uh, it is the duty of our leaders to give us guidance instead of dividing us. South Africa, with um, uh, what we know coming from the apartheid era, we don't want leaders to emerge, uh, to emerge in our communities, leaders who are dividing communities. We are seeking to see the like of Nelson Mandela's, who are more worried about uh, how to unify our communities by di- dividing them. So the mayor has uh, more to gain by responding, acknowledging that uh, his utterances which can divide communities. He has uh, more to gain by addressing them than uh, locking himself on uh, a defiance uh, situation. And uh, we want to use this opportunity to thank Channel uh, Africa for giving us and being present to uh, give us uh, this platform to talk to so many people who are interested to know about uh, South Africa, who are interested to know about Africa. And uh, I think uh, for now, Channel Africa is doing so well on that. That was Mark Bafo from the African Diaspora Forum speaking to Nflatla Mashangu. South Africa's ruling African National Congress Secretary-General Gwede Mandashe has admitted that 2016 hasn't been a good year for the governing party. Mandashe was speaking in an exclusive interview with the SABC on the setbacks that the ANC encountered this year. These range from the party's poor performance in the August 3rd local government election to widespread factionalism and disunity. Ndebomogobo has more. These are staunch ANC supporters after receiving marching orders from party president Jacob Zuma in January this year. The president delivered the annual January 8th statement, which usually calls party members to action for the year ahead. But the year proved to be a difficult one for the governing party. In 2016, the ANC grappled to normalize the situation in universities across the country following the fees must fall protests by students. Again, racism was rearing its ugly head with over 500 cases now before the Human Rights Commission since last year. On the other hand, the EFF turned Parliament into a battleground for its MPs and President Zuma. 
This year also saw a series of service delivery protests leading up to the local government elections. In August, South Africans went to elect their local government representatives, a democratic exercise which proved to be an unpleasant one for the ANC. After losing three key metros to the DA, there was a reverberating call from some quarters in the ANC for the president and the entire NEC to step down. Party veterans also raised concerns that the direction that the ANC is taking is not what they fought for and what the 104-year-old organization is all about. The latest were former MK combatants who called for sanity to prevail in order to return the party to its former glory. With all this stacked against the ANC, Party Secretary General Gwede Mantashe says this wasn't an easy year for the continent's oldest liberation movement. 2016 was quite a hectic year. You remember that as we're celebrating January 8th, we're already in the middle of the election campaign for 2016 local government elections. And everything that happened there began to talk to the elections. We campaigned hard and went to the elections with an 8% decline in our support. That was the first red light that, listen, wake up. Here is a wake-up call, wake up. I smell the coffee. If you don't wake up, you're in trouble. And I think since then we've been working hard to come out of the hole. But Mantasha says they are working hard to self-correct, insisting that 2017 will be a better year for the ANC. He says he's confident that the party will bounce back to occupy its rightful place in the country's body politic. We're doing relatively well, we're comfortable with the programs that we're doing. Uh, we've been on an ongoing introspection. As you know, that introspection is not an event. It's a process. We've been doing it every NEC since the elections in August, up to the last NEC. But coupled that with a program that is going back to the people, talking to the people, owning up, humbling ourselves, and also developing programs. And we're hoping that it will take us into a more favorable 2017. The ANC has also singled out factionalism and disunity as the party's worst enemies in the 2016 local elections, and something that Mantasha says it derails government's ability to deliver the much-needed services to the poor. He says lessons learned is to be fair when dealing with all factions within the party. A divided movement can never be at its best. We must work for unity and cohesion of the movement. And factionalism is comfortable in the sense that you need to appease that section of the movement. But the movement is only a movement in its entirety. Therefore, if you are selective, you are only dealing with just one section, you are weakening the movement. We must be seen to be working for that unity. If we say unity and we behave in a divisive way, it doesn't work for the movement. The third thing that we must deal with is the ability to manage succession and not allow succession to be free for all. Because when you do that, it can be messy. And when it is messy, I can tell you, it produces a product that is suboptimal and the movement becomes weaker all the time. For now, there is still a lead on the much-anticipated succession debate, but already some structures, including the MKMVA, the ANC Youth and Women's League, have nailed their colors to the mast calling on ANC veteran Kosasana Tlamini Zuma to take over when President Zuma steps down in 2017. Mantashi warned that the debate on who should lead the ANC shouldn't just be about friends and associations. This thing called succession can be a function of individual ambition. It can't be just a function of lobby. It can't be a function of friends and associates who are promoted. It should be about what is the kind of leader we need in the current epoch. And when you determine that, 
You must talk to the challenges facing the movement today and try to find a leader who can actually be reflective of the challenges facing the movement. Therefore, we say, have a discussion on this principle. By the time you come to the names, you actually check the names against the principle. Will this person switch off society? Will it be appealing to society? That process is quite important. By the time we go to the names, those who get out of the way and circulate slates and all those things will be disappointed if we manage this process correctly. The ANC Secretary General also used the occasion to wish South Africans well during their festive holidays. It is the end of the year. We wish our people Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. People must be moderate in everything they do. They must be safe. They must come back refreshed and strong for 2017. President Jacob Zuma is expected to deliver the 2017 ANC-NEC January 8 statement at the Orlando Stadium in Soweto. I am Debo Mokobe in Johannesburg. By any standards, 2016 was a pretty insane news year and we're not talking on the domestic front. But like here at home, politics dominated the narrative in many parts of the world, no more profound than the shock presidential election victory by New York businessman and reality star Donald Trump in the U.S. Revelations that Russia might have had a cyber hand in undermining the election results in his favor is adding further zing to Hillary Clinton's failure to make history. While at the United Nations, Syria and to a lesser extent, South Sudan are becoming the best examples of the desperate need for reforming the Security Council. Our U.S. correspondent, Sean Bryce Peace, takes us through the year that was at the U.N. and U.S.A. Donald Trump's victory in November was arguably the most significant news event the world over in 2016, and Time magazine agrees. Britain's Prime Minister Theresa May or Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte or even South Africa's Jacob Zuma might have strong arguments to counter that. But Trump's victory upended every policy hack, political scientist, election pollsters analysis that this brash billionaire from New York could win the most powerful political office in the world. And to the horror of the millions hoping for the first woman president, Trump would win the Electoral College, lose the popular vote, and win the White House. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. It's time. I pledge to every citizen of our land that I will be president for all Americans. And this is so important to me. Clinton rebuked by a groundswell of white support for Trump, distractions over her use of a private email server, campaign cyber hacks, and a failure to rally the levels of minority support that propelled President Barack Obama into the White House was yet magnanimous in defeat. I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. And to all the little girls who are watching this, never doubt that you are valuable and powerful and deserving of every chance and opportunity in the world to pursue and achieve your own 
dreams. And while protests across the United States erupted against the prospect of a Trump presidency, U.S. intelligence agencies would later accuse Russia of a cyber campaign to undermine Clinton in favor of her opponent. President Barack Obama has ordered a review of the election hacks here in conversation with The Daily Show's Trevor Noah. The reason that I uh, have called for a review is really to just gather all the threads of the investigations, the intelligence work that has been done over many months and put it in a single document that can be shared with members of Congress, relative, uh, relevant intelligence agencies. They can be shared with the transition team so that they understand what exactly happened. The Black Lives Matter movement was a constant part of the 2016 narrative as police shootings of minority groups continued. Some tallies have over 1,000 people killed at the hands of police this year, while 64 police officers at the last count had been killed in the line of duty. Gun violence and mass killings, like the Orlando nightclub attack in which 49 people were killed and more than 53 more wounded, are a constant reminder of the battle that continues to be waged in better regulating gun use in this country. While South Sudan's implosion, Burundi's defiance and ICC withdrawals would feature prominently, Syria has illuminated the failure of the Security Council to fulfill its role in the maintenance of peace and security at the United Nations. And often it would come down to a war of words between Russia and the West. First, the United States Ambassador Samantha Power and then her Russian counterpart Vitaly Cherkin. It should shame you. Instead, by all appearances, it is emboldening you. You are plotting your next assault. Are you truly incapable of shame? Is there literally nothing that can shame you? What I find very strange was the statement by the U.S. representative who built her statement as if she was Mother Teresa. Please remember what country you're representing. Remember your own country's track record. And then, and then you can start opining from the position of any moral supremacy. In some positive developments, the UN would admit its role in the Haiti cholera epidemic, celebrate one-year anniversaries of the adoption of the SDGs and the climate change agreements, and elect a new Secretary-General, a former Portuguese Prime Minister named Antonio Guterres. I believe it is high time to reconcile the people with political leaders and international organizations, to rebuild trust in our international community. And with tributes in the Security Council, the General Assembly and elsewhere, farewell to the man who led the organization for the past decade, Ban Ki-moon. Even as I prepare to leave, my heart will stay, as it has since I was a child, right here with the United Nations. And that heart is a greatly comforted knowing that I'm passing the baton to Secretary General Antonio Guterres, a man of integrity and principle. With just weeks left, we shall soon say goodbye to the Obama first family, who will depart the White House to make way for the Trumps. And perhaps this response from then Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld 
on the lack of evidence for invading Iraq in 2002 sums up what we might expect in 2017. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. It's 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Agro Africa. Hello. From the first Wednesday of this month, Agro-Africa will be coming to you at 9.20 a.m. Central African Time and on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Central African Time. Tune in to Agro-Africa and listen to stories about agriculture and its development in the African continent. We are on shortwave, internet live streaming and DSTV audio bouquet channel 802. Agro-Africa, bringing agriculture to the comfort of your home. Agro Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, Gambian President Yaya Jemez condemned mediation efforts by the African regional bloc ECOWAS that aims to get him to leave power. Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara's ruling coalition has won 65.75% of the vote in weekend polls, strengthening its hold in parliament. And the ambassador of the Democratic Republic of Congo to South Africa, Benu Poko, says preparations are underway to hold presidential elections in April 2018 in his country. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you. And Indigenous people in Australia are disproportionately represented in the country's criminal justice system, according to a United Nations rights expert, Mutuma Ruturi, the UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, recently visited Australia to gather first-hand information on the situation of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia and related intolerance there. He speaks about the challenges Indigenous people face in terms of racial discrimination. One that is very glaring is the continuing disproportionate representation of indigenous people in the criminal justice system. Many of them remain in incarcerated um, and that speaks to a problem with the way those communities are policed as well as the way the criminal justice system is dealing with the challenges faced by indigenous peoples. There is also the question of very high levels of unemployment of indigenous peoples relative to the non-indigenous populations and the marginalization of indigenous people from the benefits of economic prosperity in Australia. Your mandate is racism, so connecting the dots, does that mean that some of these conditions are due to racism? If you are going to address the conditions and the situation of indigenous people, you have to go back to the historical context of where indigenous people find themselves in this country. That history is very well known. That history was very much framed by racism and there's need for a conversation about racism and the way race ratio ideas have placed indigenous people are there and the continuing discrimination. In many cases I heard of instances of daily humiliation where indigenous people for instance in a convenience store they are checked by security guns whereas non-indigenous peoples are not checked. So during that conversation that you say needs to be had what would you recommend the Australian government to do? A number of recommendations one of them of course is to take advantage of the whole period and discussion of reconciliation as well as constitutional amendment to reopen that debate at different levels to set targets of what needs to be achieved both at the national or communal level as well as state level. Um, specifically, for instance, I noted that um, there are no justice targets at the communal level. Uh, there are justice targets at state levels in some places. Um, but it's also the complete devastation or absence of an indigenous economy. The fact that indigenous peoples remain outside the economic life and don't have an economy raises very significant challenges as their future with regard to their functioning effectively in the Australian society. You're concerned by remarks made by elected politicians about newly arrived migrants and in particular Muslims. What type of things were said and how do you describe this type of speech? I am aware of politicians who have stereotyped certain migrants as probably their values not being compatible with the values of, of the majority of Australians. I know of um, uh, politicians who have singled out uh, certain migrants of Muslim background, for instance. Those races concern, particularly in a country that is multicultural in nature. Moreover, what it does is basically create a perception that people of certain faith, people of certain racial or ethnic origin 
are not welcome in Australia. I don't think that's the kind of future that um, Australia stands for. And it's very important that um, unequivocally those kind of statements are denounced and censured. You mentioned in your press conference today that now's the time to revisit all these issues. Is that due to the rise of the populist vote globally? And also, have you seen sort of instances here that that may happen in Australia as well? Yes, of course. And uh, it's very well known in Australia that there are certain elected members of parliament who are being elected on these xenophobic platforms, platforms of hatred and racism. And um, similar developments globally. It's very clear these kind of politicians have to be confronted. They have to be challenged and they have to be delegitimized and they should not be allowed to become part of the mainstream because they don't belong in the mainstream of open democratic rights respecting societies. That was Mutuma Ruture, United Nations Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, speaking to UN Radio's Julia Dean. Now let's go back in time to today in 1997. Nigeria's Deputy Head of State, Lieutenant General Oladipo Dia, and 11 others are arrested and accused of plotting to overthrow General Sani Abacha. That was today in history in the year 1997. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Mujemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The United Nations Special Envoy for Afghanistan, Tadamichi Yamamoto, says hundreds and thousands of Afghan citizens are returning home with hope from host countries like Pakistan and Iran. Yamamoto made the remarks as he briefed members of the Security Council on the situation in Afghanistan. Many will face an uncertain future with a surge of attacks by Taliban insurgents, a volatile political situation and rampant poverty. Jocelyn Sambira. Despite all the efforts of the international community and the government of Afghanistan, a better future is not possible without peace, the UN Secretary General's Special Representative for Afghanistan warned. The human tragedy and suffering witnessed in the country is unacceptable, Tadamichi Yamamoto said as he reflected on the thousands of Afghans who were killed and wounded in the conflict this year. He called on the Taliban to commit to direct talks with the Afghan government without preconditions. The Taliban leadership must reconsider the notion that the objective can only be achieved on the battlefield. At stake is the future of the Afghan people and the country. Are the differences really irreconcilable? Is compromise and accommodation really not possible? All Afghans must come together and work through their problems and find ways to accommodate their differences for their own joint future. 
The Taliban has refused to enter talks with the Afghan government. However, a former active insurgent group called the Hizb-e-Islami Gulbuddin, HIG, reached an agreement with the authorities in September. Mr. Yamamoto said this accord demonstrates the government's willingness to negotiate on key issues such as prisoner release, lifting of sanctions, and integration into the political life of Afghanistan. The successful implementation of the agreement could address any remaining doubts, help unite the Afghans, and pave the way for further peace agreements. During the months of October, various provinces in Afghanistan were the targets of unprecedented terrorist attacks, said Ambassador Mahmoud Saikal, permanent representative of Afghanistan to the UN. The aim of the Taliban was to hold more ground in the country, but the move was thwarted by Afghan armed forces, he explained. Enforcing the UN's counterterrorism resolutions and sanctions against the Taliban and other extremist groups like Al-Qaeda and Daesh could have a significant impact on the war and peace in Afghanistan. Ambassador Saikal added, Any kind of outside contact with the Taliban or other such groups without the prior knowledge and approval of the government of Afghanistan is seen as legitimization of terror, a direct breach of our sovereignty, and in a clear contravention of the UN sanctioned regimes and Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, which will not be tolerated. Fighting terror with terror no matter what the justification, is a sign of weakness of the civilized world and a return to impasse and stagnation. Certainly, our people will suffer most from this irrational and reckless policy. Meanwhile, Yuri Fedotov, the head of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, shared the findings of his office's latest survey on opium production in the country, describing it as worrying. Opium poppy cultivation has increased by 10% and production by 43%. Production has been driven by 30% rise in the average opium yield. The number of poppy-free provinces has fallen from 14 to 13 compared to last year, while eradication is in free fall, dropping more than 90%. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. Let's go back in time to today in 1967. 53-year-old Louis Washkansky, first heart transplant patient in the world, dies in Cape Town, South Africa, 18 days after receiving the heart of Dennis Davil. The heart transplant operation was performed by Dr. Christian Barnard at uh, the Grutteskeer Hospital in Cape Town on the 3rd of December in 1963. That was today in history in the year 1967. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Malawi's Power Utility Electricity Supply Corporation Corporation ESCOM has rolled out an ambitious multi-million dollar lead bulb project that is expected to save 30 megawatts. The 30 saved megawatts are equivalent to building a new power station which could have taken five years to construct. George Mango has more. Such megawatts are enough to light Mzuzu City and Karonga District in the northern region and Zomba in the eastern region. At the same time, according to ESCOM officials, Malawians are likely to pay less on electricity bills and procurement of the bulbs as opposed to the current situation. ESCOM Regional Manager for the South, David Mbewe, said 
during the roaring out exercise in Durand Township in Blantyre that the lead bulbs are more effective than the incandescent bulbs which consume a lot of power. In the first place, the cost of an LED bulb costs in roughly, roughly about on average about 4,000 kwacha. And then for a 60 watt battery a bulb, which is an incandescent bulb, you buy at about 300 kwacha. While these ones you buy at 4,000 kwacha or 5,000 kwacha. But the consumption, the different consumption, for a 60 watt battery, uh, bulb, uh, incandescent bulb, these ones, the uh, LED bulbs, they consume about 9 watts. If it's a 100 watt incandescent bulb, these ones, they consume about uh, 13, 13 or 14 watts. So there's a lot of saving uh, for uh, the customer and also ESCOM to use these LED bulbs. But apart from that, you see, when it comes to billing, these ones, since you will be using the luminance or the brightness will be the same as either the, two, uh, the 100 watt battery, or the, one, uh, the 100 uh, watt bulb, incandescent bulb, or the uh, 60 uh, watt incandescent bulb, it's, that means there will be a saving as far as billing is concerned for postpaid or when you want to buy units, that means when you buy those units, they will last, they will last longer because they consume less. Uh, these ones, they are also energy saver bulbs, but they are better than the CFL bulbs. Because the CFL bulbs, the consumption is a little bit higher than the LED bulbs. We have got, this is a new technology, that's why we have brought, it has been brought to uh, on the market, and then that's why we're saying these ones, they'll be saving as far as the corporate world is concerned, apart from, the, and also the customers are concerned, though ESCOM at the end of the day, because of these, uh, these problems, definitely will be saving something. For example, uh, as, as I already said, that the consumption is lower than the other bulbs. During the launch of the exercise in Dirande, ESCOM officials targeted households who still use incandescent bulbs by fixing the newly promoted ones while at the same time breaking the discouraged ones. Mbewe said that ESCOM intends to distribute 1.2 million free bulbs in the first phase and then start selling at a subsidized rate to Malawians who are connected to the national grid. He added that they have spent 5,000 kwacha on each of the 1.2 million bulbs meant for the launched pilot phase of the program. One bulb costs about 5,000 kwacha. Now, 1.2 million bulbs would cost roughly 5 billion, over 5 billion kwacha. So we have invested about 5 billion kwacha on this one. Mind you, if we are to roll out this, it will be, will be saving almost over 30 megawatts. Now, for us to construct or to construct a power station um, where we'll be generating about 30 megawatts, it will cost ESCOM about 70 billion. Now, 70 billion against 5 billion. So, definitely, and we'll be saving, we'll be constructing, to some extent, this one, we are constructing a power station because we're saying the saving is almost over 25, 25 megawatts, which is likened to Nkola power station, where we generate about 20, 24 megawatts. So you can see that five, in five years, we can construct that one 5 billion, uh, to, uh, uh, this is 70 billion, but then for us to construct the power station. Now this one, we are constructing the same, we could say, the power station just in two months.
Suffice to say that Malawi is in the process of unbundling operations of ESCOM into two parastatos, meaning that Malawi will have a new sister company that is going to be mandated with the task of distributing and transmitting power countrywide. In terms of business, ESCOM will be able to concentrate on generation of power before selling it to the new sister company as a single buyer. The unbundling is being undertaken under the Power Market Restructuring PMR. Malawi needs between 500 and 1,000 additional megawatts over the next five years to keep up with demand projections. That aside, United States Millennium Challenge Corporation MCA is investing 350 million US dollars to increase power generation and improve. That report by George Mango. Road fatalities have increased by 17% in South Africa since the beginning of December compared to the same period last year. About 845 road fatalities have been recorded between the 1st and the 19th of December. Transport Minister Dupur Peters says corrupt law enforcement officers contribute to road fatalities on the country's roads. She was briefing the media in Midrand north of Johannesburg yesterday. Dita Batsotesi has more. Peters has commended Gauteng police for arresting more than 2,500 drivers for drunk driving, which she says contributes to road deaths. She says there is a new trend where women drivers are becoming more reckless on the roads, which many of them found to have overindulged in alcohol. Peters says her department is doing all it can to curb the road carnage. There are 845 fatalities recorded since the 1st to the 19th of December 2016, with an increase of 17% in comparison to the previous year, same period. We want to acknowledge and appreciate particularly the Eastern Cape for the sterling work they have done in reducing the number of fatalities. We also comment Houghton province on the arrest of 2,509 drunken drivers who are the main causes of crashes. She says most accidents have taken place in KwaZulu-Natal. Pichasa says, however, there has been a decrease in road fatalities in the Eastern Cape, Western Cape, Northern Cape and Gauteng. She says more law enforcement officials will be deployed to ensure people stick to the rules of the road. She took a swipe at corrupt law enforcement officers, whom she says contributed to road fatalities on the country's roads. Anti-corruption unit has picked up the system that is being used by the corrupt officials. We've also had situations of actual corruption happening on the roads, where traffic law enforcement officers are given bribes by motorists, offered bribes, but also those who solicit bribes, where you find that vehicle is not in a good condition. Transport Minister Deboer Peters ending that report by Ditaba Tzotezi. A sports update up next with Figle Lingwati. In this hour, we're betting off with cricket news. Sri Lanka enjoyed a productive final day of their warm-up match against a South African Invitation eleven with Kusal Pereira, Upul Taranga and Dinesh Chandimal, all hitting half-centuries at Sandwich Park in Pochefstroom on Tuesday. 
The tourists finished the three-day tour game on 212 for five. The second innings after earlier bowling out the home team for 289 with a clash ending in a draw. The South Africans managed to bet for just 2.5 overs on the third morning, adding four more runs in the process at George Linde. 25, Randy Swazuma, Dark, were the two batsmen to be dismissed. The first test of the three-match series against South Africa begins on Boxing Day at St. George's Park in Port Elizabeth. And in rugby, a comprehensive grassroots rugby development strategy rolled out in Namibia in 2013 is paying dividends in the nutshell. The Namibian Rugby Development Executive Alexander Christo says his organization will move to the east and northern section of the country in January 2017 to initiate a grassroots rugby development program aimed at training the youth. I think uh, this year it went very well. The program were, was actually running from 2013, uh, 13, 12, 13 and 14 years. And this year we had our top number of kids on the program. Although we haven't covered the areas yet, uh, the north and the, the eastern area, uh, but we started off at, at the far south and we, we covered up to Tumet. So uh, it was the north was supposed to be covered by the rugby union and the government, uh, the sports ministry. They also had a... Uh, a development uh, initiative, but unfortunately, as you know, the funding didn't come through this year, but we are hopefully to do that next year. Christa says Namibia could become one of the best sevens rugby nations in the world if rugby Namibia placed emphasis on the sevens. That is our programs, and that is basically a program bringing kids into rugby. It's not going to guarantee them playing rugby. But we're just going to expose them to the game by doing that. And uh, then we are trying to get into initiatives for schools now. Uh, sevens should be a priority area, and we are still struggling with it. And that is basically due to the fact that we don't have enough weekends in uh, in school for the second term. We are only the second term. We've got 10 weeks and uh, actually occupied by the 15th game. But uh, we look at a few initiatives now, ways how we're going to, to, to go about to, to start sevens, I mean, uh, being in Iraq for so long, I think sevens is, is, is the code that we should follow in the Namibia, uh, more than the 15th. Well, my, my argument remains is that we're going to qualify for the World Cup for as long as I left. No one will left long for the 15th. But uh, with regard to the uh, the sevens, I think we can, yeah, we will qualify, but the impact that we're going to make at 15 World Cups won't be what it should be. And finally, with football news, two goals by Mtogosi Sidube and Tepo Rikhozo for South Africa's premiership side, Bloemfontein Celtic, downed Orlando Pirates 2-1 at Orlando Stadium south of Johannesburg last night. Although they scored first through skipper and midfielder Opa Manisa, Augusto Palacios men failed to return to winning ways. And in another premiership match in east of Johannesburg in Makhulong Stadium, that's a 2 all draw between Highlands Park and Platinum Stars. That's a Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, full time.
Africa Amka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Congolese protesters clash with South African police outside the Democratic Republic of Congo's embassy in Pretoria and Malawi's power utility rolls out ambitious lead bulb project. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Kumutu Ramagadza and Kumutu Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Leonard Dembel with a song title Chitekete.